Welcome again, everybody, to the Music History Podcast. I'm Chris Shima. Glad to be with you once again. Don't forget you can subscribe not only on iTunes, not only on Google Play, not only on SoundCloud, but you can visit our website, Music History Podcasts with the S. Dot com, and you can also tweet at us at Music History Pod. You can also find me on social media at Chris Sheeman on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Do all of those things. We love to interact with you on social media and on the website, especially if you have an idea for an episode. We're already thinking about season two, even though we're only uh, in our third episode here. So, uh, all the shameless self-promoting out of the way, I uh, just want to talk a little bit about some time that I spent living in Asheville, North Carolina. Folks, the Blue Ridge Mountain region is... Uh, the most beautiful in the country, in my opinion. In fact, all of Appalachia, very rich. Not financially rich by any stretch, but extremely rich in culture and tradition. And one of those traditions in that area is certainly music. Country music began in Appalachia. It's true that the uh, Country Music Hall of Fame is based in Nashville. However, the true home of the genre is in those hills, those mountains, those gaps in Virginia and Tennessee, North Carolina, that whole region. So what made Nashville well-known as the base for country music was WSM Radio and the Grand Old Opry. Uh, the Ryman Auditorium was the hub for country music for decades, and most of the early stars really built their careers there. WSM Radio was the most powerful station in the South. Uh, it could be heard most nights all over the region. In fact, Johnny Cash used to talk about staying up late and listening to the Carter family perform on WSM radio when he lived in Arkansas. I know even today I live in South Carolina, and if I've got a late-night road trip, I can turn on WSM right on the coast of South Carolina and pick it up clear as a bell. Uh, but the Carter family, just going back to that for a minute, was, of course, from the Bristol area. So it was the small cities that helped launch country music, and the big cities helped market it to the masses. So where's the rightful birthplace? My next guess is here to make the case that Bristol is actually the true home for country music. Uh, Dr. Renee Rogers is the head curator at the birthplace of Country Music Museum in Bristol, uh, Virginia slash Tennessee, which, by the way, should be a must visit for any uh, fan of music in this country. Dr. Rogers, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So... uh, what do we know about the – how far back does country music go? I remember watching PBS and the Ken Burns, I think, documentary about Appalachia, and he was talking about how country music really evolved from Irish roots. Is that uh, correct? Well, there's definitely some Scots-Irish roots, um, especially when you think of some of the old ballads. Um, but, you know, there's a lot that influences the music of the of the Appalachians and not just Scots-Irish. Of course, there's African-American influence. There's also Native American influence. But a lot of this hillbilly music was coming together from a lot of different strands. And, um, you know, we're just very fortunate that this part of the country in the, in the Appalachian Mountains had a lot of those people together making music and sort of influencing and impacting each other and using their styles together and and reinventing them and creating this wonderful music. So the Egyptians had art on caves, and is it safe to say that this was a more cultural thing for the people in the area? Yeah, oh, well, certainly. I mean, the music is a huge part of the culture and tradition of this area. Um, you know, it was then, and it, and it still is now. 
Tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, visiting the Country Music Hall of Fame, living in Asheville. I kind of always thought that Asheville had a few players uh, who may have predated the Carter family. So why is Bristol the home, in your opinion? So we are, we are called the birthplace of country music, and that is going back to a very specific um, recording sessions that were held here in 1927. They're now known as the 1927 Bristol Sessions. We are very well aware of the context of these sessions, that there was a lot of different recordings of hillbilly music going on at the same time before 1927 and after it, and those were significant also in this history. But what happened in Bristol in 1927 is particularly significant. It was kind of like a perfect storm of events that happened here that that created, um, even though we're called the birthplace of country music, when we're talking about it in a more nuanced way, we think of it as sort of the birth of early commercial country music. That hillbilly music was already there. People were playing it. um, People were recording it. But what happened in Bristol, um, the combination of Ralph Peer coming here from the Victor Talking Machine Company to do recordings. You know, he was encouraged to come here by Ernest Stoneman, uh, a musician that he had worked with before and who had done a great deal of hillbilly recordings already before 1927. Ralph Peer um, was hired by Victor specifically to try and build their hillbilly catalog because he had done been working on that for a, for another record label, OK Records, before that. He really know, knew the type of music that would sell well. He knew um, how to market and distribute it well. So you had that expertise, obviously, that is part of the equation. But also, right before the 1927 Bristol Sessions, there was also a change in technology that was influential. And that was the change from the acoustic horn technology to the electric microphone technology, which meant the actual quality of the records was different. There was a bit more nuance to them, a bit more balance to the sound. They were using a term orthophonic, this idea of more authentic sounding, and also the new players that were playing these records. But it was also the first time that the Carter family, who was known as the first family of country music, and Jimmy Rogers, who was known as the father of country music, it was the first time that they recorded, was here in Bristol in 1927. So all of those things coming together made the Bristol Sessions particularly significant. Um, but like I said, there's a much larger context to that of really important recordings that were happening in the South at the time with Hillbilly Recordings, but also up at the major um, studios for these record labels. But, you know, in 1928, Ralph Peer came back to Bristol to record again. Um, there was also recordings that were happening in Johnson City around this time. So um, just a little bit up the road from here. And when Ralph Peer came here in 1927, he went further south and kept recording. So we are not the only one for sure. And we, um, but we certainly like to celebrate and talk about the history of what happened here in 1927 because it had that significance. Yeah, everything kind of evolves. There has to be a kind of a big bang, uh, commercially speaking, for anything really to happen, for us to be sitting here talking about it, you know, what, 81 or whatever, however many years later. 91, in fact. Yeah. We had our 90th anniversary last year. Thanks for the uh, math correction. I, I, It's it's a Friday, and I should just know better. <laughs> Thank you. For well, that. you know, but I'm also well aware of it because it was a big deal for us in yeah, the, in sure. last year. We had, a, we had a big symposium with a lot of the descendants from the 1927 Bristol Sessions artists here, so that's still pretty fresh in our minds because it was such a special occasion for us. That's all right. I'll, I'll take summer classes and hopefully get that straightened out. But uh, let's talk specifically about the uh, Carter family because they garner so much at- attention uh, as as kind of the stewards and, and the leaders in that region. What What is known 
about what made them, what made their family want to become this country music uh, sensation. I'm sure that a lot of people who came here in 1927 didn't necessarily think that what happened would happen with them. Certainly with the Carters, I mean, they came here to record. They obviously had been making music together, Sarah and AP and Maybell. They'd been performing together, but I'm not sure anyone knew how significant those recordings would be for them at the time. So when they came here, they recorded, they had some success from those recordings and were asked to record further with, with Victor. And then they went on to record many other songs with both Victor and with some other labels. But, you know, the big thing that happened with the Carters is that they, in the late 1930s, they really found a lot of success also through their radio appearances, which was, you know, highly significant in helping them to to become a popular music act that a lot of people knew about and were, they were hearing in their homes. And not only um, the fact that they were radio appearances, but also the fact that they went on to border radio, which was down in on the Texas-Mexico border. There was this um, yeah. radio station that had this massive transmitter that could broadcast from Mexico to Canada. So they were being heard all over the place. It was such a strong signal that, um, you know, it was rumored that you could pick pick it up in Texas by hanging a tin can on a barbed wire fence. Whether or not that was true, I'm not sure. But that was, that was um, allegedly what was true. But, right. you know, those records and they made a huge amount of recordings, but also those radio appearances were pretty significant. And then, of course, the fact that the Carter family didn't just stop with Sarah, AP, and Maybell. They continued on with the family. You know, Maybell continued performing later with um, her daughters. Um, AP and Sarah performed with their their son and daughter. Then, of course, we've got grandchildren who are still performing today. So that that musical tradition within the Carter family was pretty strong and, and is still pretty significant today. I mean, just up the road, we have the Carter family fold, where, which is run by um, Rita Forrester, the granddaughter of Sarah and AP. And, you know, every weekend, every Saturday, it's filled to the brim with people who are here to celebrate and hear this music. The uh, most interesting drive I've ever taken to just go home to see my folks from Ohio was uh, coming from Asheville up the Country Music Highway, which is just a few miles uh, west of Bristol. And I highly recommend anybody who loves this genre of music, anybody who loves music in general, to uh, not only uh, stop at the museum, but uh, go a little bit west and take that Country Music Highway because it talks a lot about uh, the stories that we're telling here today. But also uh, more contemporary artists, Dwight Yoakam, the Judds, and, and, and people like that. Uh, Dr. Rogers, I wanted to uh, just mention... Uh, some of the others, we talk about the Carter family so much in that area. Who were some of the other early influencers from the Bristol and that whole area? Well, you know, I like to also think a lot about um, some of the lesser known people who were here in 1927. You know, everyone has heard, like you said, of the Carter family and, and Jimmy Rogers, but there was there was some really interesting characters who also recorded in 1927 that had their their own influences um one of whom i think of is uncle Eck dunford for instance he he's a he was born up near galax virginia which isn't too far from well when i say too far it's a couple of hours from bristol um but he played and and sang quite a lot with the stonemans um and certainly when he came here in 1927 he recorded several songs with them but he was very much 
he appealed quite a lot to, to Ralph Peer because he had a very distinctive way of talking, a very sort of distinctive style. He did a lot of those sort of comedy novelty type songs that, that are also popular back in hillbilly music. Um, and he was asked back to record with Pierre in Atlanta in 1928, for instance. Um, so a, a lesser known musician, but someone actually did have quite a bit of um, significance within the music that was, that was recorded in 1927. And in fact, one of the songs that he recorded in 1928, when he came back to Bristol to record with Pierre um, was called Old Shoes and Leggings. And that was, that was later featured on Harry Smith's anthology of American folk music. Um, he's, he's actually a, he's a real eccentric too. So I, I like his story quite a lot. Um, you can actually go on our blog on our website and, and read a little bit about him. But um, Leslie, Leslie Riddle is someone else that I think of. Um, he traveled around with AP Carter back in when AP was traveling around and sort of trying to gather up these songs um, you know, AP was really interested in finding a lot of these old songs and, and tweaking them and making them his own and, and making them so that they were actually ready to be recorded because, of course, a lot of these old ballads, 12, 13, 14 verses, aren't going to fit on a, on a 78 record. They had to be sort of tweaked down to fit that recording time. Right. And Leslie Riddle traveled around with him. He was um, living in Kingsport, Tennessee, which is, again, just up the road. And he was traveling around with A.P. Carter and helping him to, to gather those songs and, and get the music and the lyrics. Um, but he also is said to have influenced Maybell um, with her style of how she played the guitar. And obviously she she sort of made it her own and is created it into something that we call the Carter Scratch today, which is a particular way of, of playing a style that she was playing. But um, it's said that Leslie Riddle sort of helped helped influence her and showing her how to, to play the guitar in a, in a bit of a different way. So, you know, there's some interesting people out there that are part of this story that aren't necessarily as, as well known, but that have um, this influence. I mean, I think also of, of Hattie Stoneman, you know, she was Ernest Stoneman's wife. Um, we talk a lot about Ernest Stoneman, but she, she was playing all this music. Um, she was recording with, with Ernest Stoneman and with others in that, that family of musicians um, throughout. But at the same time, she was having 23 children. That's pretty incredible when you think about it. Um, I mean, when did she have time to record? It makes you wonder, yeah. And, you know, there's there's another, this is another one of those people that we have an interesting story about where, you know, when before Ernest Stoneman started recording hillbilly music, there's a story that says that he, he was walking along and he heard a recording by Henry Witter, which he was another... Um, musician from this area, from this region. And he was listening to this recording by Henry Witter. And he said, you know, I could play better than that. I could, I could do a good job like that. And he said that to Hattie and she's like, well, you need to do it then. You need to go and record. She sort of in, in influenced him and, and encouraged him to do that where he was sort of just saying, oh, I could do better than that. And she's like, we'll put your money where your mouth is and go do it. And, and he went and recorded and that's a great story. But we also had some interesting musicians in 1927 here, um, they were playing a lot of gospel and sacred music. You know, that's a big part of the music that was recorded here in Bristol in 1927 and, and 1928, but also at other recordings. You know, gospel sacred music was hugely influential in this area, but also a very popular style of music. Um, there was Ernest Phipps who came here, and um, he's sort of viewed by some scholars as a pioneer of Southern gospel music. Um, he was playing that 
holiness music, that energy with clapping and shouting, really fast tempo, a bit wild, these wonderful, beautiful harmonies. And he came to Bristol both in 1927 and 1928 with a group of singers. Um, in 1927, it was with his holiness quartet and in 1928 he came back with with several more singers um so more than just a quartet and they were called the holiness singers um so that's a nice wonderful sort of gospel sacred music and then also someone right. like alfred Corns, um who also was bringing that that gospel sacred music lots of different styles of that music so i like to tell i like to tell some of the stories of some of the lesser known people and especially because like i said when we were talking about the 90th anniversary we are we actually get some of those stories direct from the descendants of these families, which is really interesting for us to, to have some of those personal connections. That's one of the things that I love most about the area is you will find the families are still around. So before we let you go, Dr. Rogers, I, I want to talk a little bit. Uh, you've kind of given us a little uh, hint as to what's going on at the Birthplace of Country Music Museum, but uh, let folks know about the website. Let them know about uh, what's going on at the museum before we get out of here. Okay, so if you go to our website, it's www.birthplaceofcountrymusic.org. You can find out anything you want to know about our organization. Um, Some of your listeners might not realize that we're actually part of a wider organization that also runs a music festival, and we do that every third weekend in September. It's called the Bristol Rhythm and Roots Reunion, so that's we're heading towards that right now. Um, But also, we have a live working radio station in our museum, which is an wonderful thing for our visitors, but also a wonderful way for us to take this history in the museum outside our doors. Um, That's Radio Bristol. So you can listen to us via our website or download the Radio Bristol app. But that's um, a wonderful sort of celebration and discussion about the history and impact of this music in this area. It's a really wonderful, the, the tagline is, is putting the roots back in radio. And it's, very much about our community and the region and sharing some really interesting music. So our, our website will give you access to that. Like I said, we also have a blog there where we, we share posts about six times a month of different topics that are related to the content in the museum and the, the songs that we're playing on the radio station and what's going on at the festival behind the scenes at the museum, the things that are in our vault that aren't on display. We talk about those things. So it's a great way to connect with us, and I'd really encourage your listeners to check us out and actually to come visit us. Yeah, this little 20-minute podcast is really just the tip of the iceberg, but uh, Dr. Rogers, I, I really want to thank you for uh, giving us some of your time and uh, really appreciate your insight into the uh, history of country music. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a great, It's been a great time to talk to you. Glad to do it, and uh, glad that you could be a part of it. Again, birthplaceofcountrymusic.org is the website that you can go to. It's uh, great to hear that passion about uh, country music and the history of it. It's so rich in that area. I miss uh, living there every day. Folks, before we get out of here, once again, a reminder, you can uh, download, subscribe, find our podcast, iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play. You can also go to musichistorypodcastsplural.com. Uh, and uh, get even more information about the birthplace of country music, Dr. Rogers, and all of our guests from this season. So that's it. Uh, We'll have another podcast for you here, so feel free to check that out. Again, thanks for listening, everybody.